0: Ninety-four seven KTWV HD three Los Angeles In Session with Dr. Fadid Palaqui. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Delaqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology Including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310 4410555. Uh, before I get started, wanted to announce the book of the week for this week, which I'll talk about on next Monday's show. It is the Improbability Principle by David J. Hand. The Improbability Principle, Why Coincidences, Miracles, and Rare Events Happen Every Day. And, uh, have a few books ready to pick for the books of the week. But really the reason why I picked this one is that on the cover, uh, It has the Ace of Diamonds, Ace of Spades, Ace of Hearts, and Ace of Clubs, and I played a lot of cards with my family this weekend for the Thanksgiving holiday, so I think that's kind of what made me want to choose this book for this week in particular, but I did have a great time with my family. For those of you that were with family for Thanksgiving, hope you enjoyed them as well, but that is the book for this week, which I'll talk about on Monday's show, The Improbability Principle by David J. Hand. Now to the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight, The Forgetting Machine by Rodrigo Cuián Quiroga. The Forgetting Machine, Memory, Perception, and the Jennifer Aniston Neuron, which is in quotes and definitely something that I was curious about what is the Jennifer Aniston Neuron, but I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the title, The Forgetting Machine, it's interesting in reading this book, he talks about memory a lot. That's really the main topic of the book, and different types of memory, which I'll talk about a little bit as well. And memory really is something that gives us a sense of self. In some ways, you can say, what are we without our memories, knowing who I am, what I've experienced, what I've gone through, the things that have happened in my life. Or even if you think of a thought experiment, if we put someone's brain in someone else's body and we switch bodies for two people, you would probably think the brain is really the person, not the body. So if you put my brain in John's body and John's brain in my body, and then we both lived our lives, you would think the brains are really more the person, not the body. So this shows us that really our sense of self comes from our brain and our mind, and I'll talk a bit about that distinction, and this idea of our memories, what we have, what we uh, have experience, who am I, all comes from that. But the title of the book, The Forgetting Machine, in a way is implying more this concept that although we remember so much and we can study memory and there is so much research being done on memory, what is interesting is also how little we remember or how much we forget. He goes through some Uh, concepts and even using some math to try to understand how many bits of information the brain receives, even in a visual sense or even in what it remembers. And what we find is that even what we see or what we could see, a lot less of that information comes to the brain. And what we could remember, a lot less of that stays with us. So a lot of people think of where we have this idea of our brains and our memory as a recording device that is literally recording everything that ever happened to us and that we have that stored perfectly within our brains. And all you have to do is like a filing cabinet or a Google search, be able to know the right ways of triggering that memory or that information and it will come up with great fidelity. We know that this is not really how memory works. It is not this perfect recording device. It doesn't record everything. And so much could even change how we remember things. And even each time you remember an event in your life and let's say retell a story, it will change the memory of that event. So you might remember a story now. And for example, for me on September 11th, I was in New York, September 11th, 2001. And it's a story that um, I've shared many times and maybe even would like to share with more people who are close to me because it was an experience. And I'm remembering, I forgot to tell someone about that story. Um, But anyway, that story I've said so many times that although it seems very much like I'm remembering exactly what happened, I'm sure that because of my retelling, that has changed. And so our memories, although they are really incredible in how they aid us and assist us and how much we really can remember, we also have to recognize that one, our memories are not infallible. There's a lot of errors and mistakes that we make based on our memory. And two, there's so much of what we experience that we don't remember, but this is actually a good thing. Because if we remembered everything that happened, every sensory experience, every event, every moment, everything that we heard, it would be too much. It would be overwhelming. It wouldn't be helpful. And in the book, he even shares stories of some people who had some interesting ways that they would remember everything, almost whether you want to call it a gift or a curse, it gets, it could be kind of both, maybe it is both, but they would remember almost too much and it made it more difficult for them to actually comprehend things. And so that's what he talks about is that our brain, although of course it remembers so much and we have such a great memory, it's more about comprehension. That's what makes us humans. Understanding things is more important than just memorizing things. And even he talks about our our education system and how it sometimes is geared more towards teaching kids to memorize things when that has very little value overall compared to actually teaching them to understand things. So it's really fascinating, this perspective. I had never heard it presented quite in this way, uh, calling the brain a forgetting machine that actually something that it does so well is that it consolidates information and doesn't remember everything because if we did remember everything, that would actually be a problem. It wouldn't be a good thing. Um, But just to talk about the different types of memories, maybe it could be a good uh, kind of basic uh, overview of some of those types of things. There are different ways of categorizing memory, but one way we can talk about it is in a way the duration of how long we remember something. And there's three different levels of that that we have. The first one is sensory memory. This is The idea that when you see something and if you close your eyes for a second, you'll still have that memory instantly of what you saw. Or if you're saying something, you'll kind of hear what you're saying for maybe a couple seconds. It'll still stay in your ear. And this is why sometimes if you're talking and you misspeak. So if you say, since I used the word John before, my friend John, she went to the store yesterday. And then you might catch yourself that you realize you said she even a second or two after but if you've actually noticed it, people usually don't catch themselves 20 seconds after because it's not in their sensory memory anymore. They've lost that. So you've maybe heard someone talking, and Persians uh, are very bad with he and she, because in Farsi we don't have that word, so they kind of use it interchangeably when they talk, which can lead to a lot of confusion when they're talking to someone who especially doesn't know that they make these kinds of switches. But they'll, if you say he or she incorrectly, you might hear it in your own head, for a second or two, and that's why you might correct yourself. But 20 seconds later, if someone tells you, oh, you said he or she, you won't remember that you said that. So we have a sensory memory that is really very momentary that comes from the senses. And if we pay attention to something, then we can keep it in the next level, which is short-term memory, which can last seconds or even minutes. But this is what allows us to, for example, pay attention to what I'm saying and previously have said to have an idea of what I'm talking about. Or if someone gives you a phone number, you can keep it in your short-term memory for a while. Uh, It allows you to stay essentially in the moment of what's happening. And then with repetition, things from the short-term memory can then get stored in long-term memory, which could last hours, days, or even years. You might remember something that happened or some information from many years ago um, that was said, but usually it involves some type of repetition unless it was something very emotionally charged Then you might have what we call a flashbulb memory, where something that was so significant uh, stays with you. Although even as I'm saying that, I recognize that usually when something significant happens, whether you're retelling the story, as I talked about with my experience of being in New York in 9-11, or if it's something else that happened to you, you're more than likely going to retell the story or replay it in your head a lot. So there probably is some type of repetition that happens nonetheless, even if it is a flashbulb memory. But those are essentially the three levels of memory. We can divide sensory, short-term, and long-term memory. But then long-term memory itself is not all the same because there's two different categories and within that sub-subcategories that we have, we have the declarative memory, which is things like information. So it's either things that happen to you, events that happen to you, which is called episodic memory or semantic memory, which is things like facts and concepts. But then also there's... What we call non-declarative memory and that's things like skills and habits so this is why they say for example you'll never forget how to ride a bike i don't even know how to ride a bike something maybe i wish i did know how to do but they say you never forget how to ride a bike because it's in a different type of memory that actually is harder to lose and that we keep in a different way and even different parts of the brain are dedicated to these different types of memories and one way that they determined this which was really interesting was there's a famous case of a patient named hm and because of seizures that he was experiencing they removed his hippocampus and because of what he experienced after that surgery they realized that the hippocampus is critical for creating long-term memory because after that fact he couldn't make new memories so he would meet someone even every day, this, uh, I think it was a psychologist, and she would meet with him every day for years. But every time they met, it was as if they were meeting for the first time. He would say hello and introduce himself to her, but he didn't know he had met her just the day before and for many days before that. So they found that he cannot form new memories. And even he couldn't really understand, because of this new memories, the passage of time. So he was 27 at the time of the surgery. And two years later, when he was 29, if they asked him, how old are you? He would say 27 because he could not remember the memories or the moments that happened after that surgery. But interestingly enough, and this is why we know there's two different types of long-term memories, when they asked them to practice a task, which involved tracing drawings, but looking at a mirror, which is difficult to do, but you get better at over time. He did get better over time, even though when they asked him, have you done this before, he didn't remember ever doing it. So it was really interesting that he would get better at something he didn't remember doing, but still develop the skill over time, showing that there is a different type of long-term memory that might not involve the hippocampus as much because he was still able to do that, but that he was able to get better at this skill. So we see that memory... And a lot of the brain is devoted to memory because it is so important. And so even though we forget a lot, we, of course, remember so much because with our memories, we have our sense of self. And also that's how we're allowed to uh, function in the world, to know what to do, not to do, how to do things in relationships, in our lives, whatever it might be. Now, I did want to talk about this idea of the Jennifer Aniston neuron because it obviously has a name that stands out. And you, you wouldn't expect to hear that in scientific book, The Jennifer Aniston Neuron. But basically, uh, these are what they also call concept neurons. And what they are is, and the reason why it's called The Jennifer Aniston Neuron is that the author of the book himself, he was doing research, I believe it was at UCLA, looking at how individual neurons responded to different images. And what he found, and he said he was so amazed when he saw this, watching uh, the activity of a participant and a neuron in their brain in the hippocampus that one of the neurons would react only when the person was seeing a picture of Jennifer Aniston but was not reacting or showing it would not fire when they were seeing a picture of let's say Kobe Bryant or Oprah Winfrey or other celebrities but it would fire anytime Jennifer Aniston even in different situations or positions or she looked differently but it was still her it would fire and so that led to this idea that they're still trying to understand that we have certain neurons in our brains that might actually fire to individual concepts or individual things. And they're really, it was a big discovery and they're still trying to understand that. But it's called concept neurons is really maybe a more appropriate term, but still they call it also the Jennifer Aniston neuron because that's how it was discovered. And so it could be for any concept you have in your brain from dog or cat or St. Kilda Beach or Koala, whatever the concept might be, you might have an individual neuron in your hippocampus that responds just to that thing. And they're trying to understand how this can help us understand memory better. Uh, So the book itself, it, it talks about memory, but also, like I was saying before, what makes us human and understanding what our sense of self is and how we have that sense of self. And if what makes us human is these memories and things. Could you make a robot, in a way, conscious or human? And that type of debate was actually something he discusses in the last chapter, trying to understand consciousness and what it is, and do animals experience consciousness, and how do we define that? Which was an interesting discussion, and there isn't any um, full-on conclusion that you can say we know exactly what consciousness is, or we can say that animals definitely don't have it. I think a better way of looking at consciousness is There is different levels to consciousness that you can be aware of some things, but different ways that you can think about it, and then the ways that you can think abstractly about those things as well. But anyway, coming back to this concept of the forgetting machine, it's interesting that in the a book about memory, so much of it is devoted to also understanding how we don't remember everything that we could remember even more. But in effect, what makes us very human is that we do forget things that we don't remember everything, and we understand things more than we just remember and there's implications for how we even look at education and the way we live our lives based on this idea that understanding might have more value than just memorizing and he also talks about how that's why using your let's say smartphone you can be overwhelmed by information which is harmful but you can also use things like your phones to schedule things to keep track of things that you don't have to remember anymore that can actually, in a way, free up space for you to think about other things. Sometimes people complain, oh, you know, I don't remember any more phone numbers because I just store them in my phone, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, if you're stuck somewhere and your phone doesn't work and you don't remember any phone numbers, that could be a problem, but in general, what you experience is that you leave that information in your phone and it does allow you to think about other things, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. So it's actually a very quick read, this book, The Forgetting Machine, um, so, if you're interested in learning some basics about memory, you can check this book out, The Forgetting Machine by Rodrigo Cuyan Quiroga. And the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Improbability Principle by David J. Hand. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. A topic I've talked about a lot on recent shows over the past few weeks is empathy, which is when we try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes to feel what they are feeling. And it is a very important part of what we would call emotional intelligence or even social intelligence, both of those things, and depends on how you want to define them. But you need to be able to experience empathy in order to have really strong and healthy, good relationships, and in order to be there for other people emotionally. Because unless you are willing to try to understand someone else's feelings and pain, you really can't be there for them on a deep way. And a few weeks ago, I talked about this concept of if you don't feel uh, your own pain, if you don't have the courage to face your own pain, you can't really be there for other people. So the way I put it was to feel someone else's pain, you must be in touch with your own. Empathy requires the courage to face your own painful feelings. And so if we're not willing to accept, tolerate, and face our own painful feelings, especially things like sadness, we won't really be able to be there for other people. And sometimes people will tell me half jokingly, half seriously, that you, you tell people a lot to to love sadness, or that they should like sadness, or that some people don't like sadness and that they should like it, or even uh, this idea that maybe I want everyone to be sad or I want them to cry. And that definitely is not true, but what I don't want people to do, which is what so many of us do, is to avoid their sadness, to pretend like their sadness is not there, or even worse, to judge their own sadness in a negative way, to think that if they have sadness, they're weak, or something is wrong with them, or they're not okay, or they can't be uh, successful, or whatever else, or no one will want to be around them if they have sadness, because everyone wants you to be happy. And if I'm sad, and it makes someone around me sad, well, then why would they want to be around me? And so that's what I don't want, is for people to avoid the feeling. And actually, um, another aspect of that is people think, well, if I get sad, what if I stay sad forever, or for a long time? That's a fear that many people have when it comes to facing their painful feelings and actually what most people will experience in my own personal experience and working with clients is that the more you avoid a feeling, the longer it lasts. And one way we put this is that what you resist persists. So if you avoid a feeling of sadness and think that's a better way of dealing with it, what usually happens is that actually it lingers there and it affects you in some way just you aren't so aware of it and it doesn't go away but if we actually face and embrace the feeling and allow for it to in essence run its course we're more likely to first of all learn from whatever we're going through because our feelings are are information just like your physical feelings are information if your leg hurts it's telling you something is not okay with your leg Whether you need to get some medical treatment or something about how you're walking is not okay. Similarly, if your feelings hurt, it can tell you if you need some kind of treatment or maybe if some way that you're living your life or something in your relationships is not okay. So to ignore those feelings is ignoring information that can actually help you live a better life, help you have better relationships, help you have better mental health. So my, um, talking about sadness in this way, which can sound like I like sadness, is not at all that I want people to be sad. It's that I want them to feel their sadness when it arises because it's part of being human. And actually then it'll be easier for them to live their lives and have their relationships with that. So I don't want you to be sad. I just don't want you to not feel your sadness when it comes. Just like if you have physical pain, I wouldn't want you to ignore that either. So imagine that analogy. If I say, you know, if something hurts, I want you to recognize it. So you either get help or get rest or do whatever you need to do. It doesn't mean I want you to feel pain. It's that I know that pain is something that can come up and that information can actually be very helpful for you. So I want you to feel that. So I do want to make that point again, because I know talking about sadness in this way makes it seem like I think it's such a great thing that I want everyone to feel. But on the contrary, I want people to actually experience it when it arises so that They don't have to hold on to it as long because that's what you see. Someone is grieving the loss of someone and they're resisting crying or facing the feelings. And actually their grieving takes even longer because they don't get over what's happened because they keep avoiding the feelings. So for me, it's about facing it when it's there and then moving on. But another aspect of empathy that I wanted to talk about, something that gets in the way of people sometimes being there for someone emotionally. So again, let me reiterate the first point that if you can't tolerate your own sadness, and if you're not in touch with your own sadness, you're not going to have tolerance for someone else's sadness, and you won't be able to really get in touch with that either. So the amount of empathy is very limited. You really can't be there for them. And if anything, usually you might even get upset with someone for being sad, or you will undermine that they are sad and tell them they shouldn't be sad for what they're feeling and just tell them that's not a reason to be sad. You shouldn't be sad, Um, be stronger, get over it, or that guy or that girl isn't worth your tears or whatever it might be, but just to get them away. So if we don't have that connection to our feelings and acceptance that it's okay to be sad, we won't be able to be there for someone else. Whether you're a friend, family member, and especially as a parent. And it's very important for parents to have that connection to their own feelings and be okay with their own feelings so that when their children are sad or mad, they can tolerate that. But what I also wanted to talk about tonight was this idea that empathy does not mean agreement. And this is really important because people sometimes think if I don't agree with how someone is feeling, then I can't show them empathy. But this is not true. When you're Showing empathy, you're saying, if I were in your shoes, and in a way meaning if I were you, I could understand how you feel. It doesn't mean I would necessarily feel that, but if I were you. Or to put it another way, it seems like this is hurting you. I know what pain feels like. So I know what sadness feels like, or anger, or grief, or disappointment. And so I can connect to you in that way, even if the same event wouldn't give me that same feeling. And even another way of looking at this is when we look at politics, that people sometimes try to think, how could someone think differently from me? And when we try to understand each other better, and that's what empathy is, it involves understanding, it doesn't mean agreement. So if you're pro-choice and you think that a person should have a right to choose, you can still feel that way and think that way, but understand that someone who claims to be pro-life doesn't think that abortion is okay because they see it as killing a life. They believe that the baby is already there when conception occurs. So to kill that baby is to them equivalent to murder or killing someone. So even if you don't agree with their premise and their understanding from their perspective, you can understand how they think about it. So you don't have to agree, but you can understand. So similarly, if someone cries to you about something that to you is not a big deal, if you really want to show empathy, what that means is that you'll recognize that even if you don't think it's a big deal, you can see that it's hurting them and you can understand that pain. Let me give an example of something a little bit more extreme, but that also illustrates the same point. I did a one-year internship at a psychiatric hospital when I was in graduate school. And I remember one of my supervisors there, he gave me great advice in showing empathy with patients who were psychotic, who were, for example, having hallucinations or delusions. Because it could be interesting to think, how do I show empathy to someone who tells me they see something that I know isn't there, or who thinks that they're an alien who was sent here from a different planet and they're going through something really difficult? How do you show empathy to someone whose experience is so different? So this is taking it to the extreme. Something that we'd say is completely out of touch with what we could call reality, So let's say someone says, I see this monster and it scares me. And you look in the room and you know, there's no monster. So what he would say was, you can say, I believe that you see this monster and that must be terrifying. That must be very scary, which really is the truth. I of course, wouldn't see anything. But I could imagine that if I saw a monster, and let's say the person describes the monster and it's scary and it's coming towards them, that of course I would be terrified too. So it is showing empathy of saying, I'm not saying I agree with what you're saying even, that I see the monster too. And we wouldn't do that. So we wouldn't say, oh yeah, there is a big monster and he's really scary. We would just say, I can understand that you see the monster and that must be very scary. That sounds terrifying. So it's showing that I can understand that that would be scary, even if my experience and my uh, feeling or even what I go through is very different from you. So usually we're not dealing with such a disparity of our experience in someone else. So someone says, oh, I broke up with my girlfriend or boyfriend after two months. And you're like, oh, two months is not a big deal. I don't really care if I break up after two months. But that could be you. Your experience is different from them. But you can understand what the feeling of pain is to lose something that matters to you. And that's how we connect. That's how we can show empathy. Or your child comes home and says, the teacher said I didn't do a good job on this project and now I'm crying. And you might think, well, I don't want my kid to be sad about what the teacher said or some feedback. But you can understand that it doesn't feel good when you love your teacher and you really want your teacher to be proud of you and your teacher makes you feel like you didn't do a good job and you feel like you let them down. So rather than saying, who cares what your teacher thinks, or it doesn't matter, but do this or do that. The first thing you want to do is show empathy that I understand. And this is what I tell parents. I tell partners, whoever it is, is that always start with empathy. When someone comes to you and says, this is what happened to me, this is what hurt me, or this is what I'm feeling. A lot of times what people do is they jump straight into advice or they jump straight into dismissing the feelings. And again, this usually comes back to the idea that we don't like the feelings. We can't tolerate the feelings in ourselves. We don't want to see someone else experience it when they experience it. We start to feel it. So we just try to get rid of the feeling. So kid comes home and says, oh, like three of my friends said they didn't want to play with me and they walked away. And a lot of parents, the first thing he says, who cares what your kid friends say? There's other people to be friends with. People have their opinions. Why should you let that bother you? You don't need to cry. You don't need to be sad. Nothing happened. You're going to have lots of friends or you're going to get older and forget about this or whatever else we say and everything they're doing, although they think, look how great my advice is and I'm helping my child. All they're doing is invalidating the child's feelings in that moment and saying that these feelings are not okay. Both they're not okay for you to have them and there are these really bad things that we shouldn't feel. And none of that is going to feel good to the child. And there will be time and there is space to explore new ways of dealing with the situation, of exploring different perspectives, of giving even advice can be possible. But always first try to connect with the feeling. Say, wow, I could see that how that didn't feel good. And if you don't believe it, I give this example to parents all the time who come at me with this type of advice that they gave their kids imagine if you went to dinner with your friends and three of them said you know what we don't want to have dinner with you we don't want to talk to you we're going to go sit at another table and they literally got up and left and went to another table now you can tell yourself i wouldn't care at all and doesn't matter but i'm saying actually your friends that you've known let's say for years and so to think you really wouldn't care at all i probably wouldn't believe that people would have no reaction to it but imagine how this even happened to a small child So hopefully you can have that empathy that you can understand this is going to hurt. And it's okay that it hurts because life sometimes hurts and we all can deal with it and be okay. But in that moment, we have to deal with the hurt. It's like, because I like to use analogies of, Uh, emotional pain and physical pain and emotional sickness and physical sickness. It's like if your kid catches a cold and you say, you know what? You're going to get over this cold. So who cares that you have a cold? I'm not going to take care of you or bring you medicine and juice and soup and things to make you feel better because you're going to get over this. So who cares? In 10 years, you'll forget you had this cold. You would never do that. You'd say, oh, you're hurting. Let me help you with that pain. I can't take it all away instantly, and that's not what I'm going to try to do. But I want to be there for you your pain and so we want to do the same thing with the emotional pain it's not a pleasant thing you don't want your kid to feel sick you of course feel something when they're sick and you want them to feel better but i'm going to be there for you and i'm going to help you so we want to do the same thing emotionally okay you're sad i'm not going to take away your sadness instantly that's not even my goal right now my Goal is to be here with you in your sadness when you're not feeling good. If there's any way I can help you, I will, and we'll talk about it. But the goal isn't just to make that sadness disappear instantly, because that's not how things work. Just like a cold doesn't disappear instantly. We do small things to help, but it takes some time. So we want to have that same feeling and response to emotional pain. This is what you're going through. And in this moment, I'm with you now. I'm going to help you now. And always start with empathy. I could see how that didn't feel good. I can see how you were hurt or that made you sad. And then once you connect to the feeling, usually there is this feeling or this response of, okay, now let's look at what I can do if they're ready for that. So what do you want to do tomorrow when you go to school? Or what do you think you can learn from this? All those opportunities are there. But usually when we invalidate someone's feelings, we lose all of that. We go away from all of that. So again, this idea is that we don't need to agree with someone to show them empathy. I have clients that are dealing with all different types of things. Some of them I've maybe gone through something similar. Some of them I haven't. I've been fortunate not to have ever had a drug addiction. But if someone tells me how difficult it is to deal with a drug addiction, I could try to connect it to something and feel that pain. Or I haven't lost... Um, someone, a parent, let's say, to death, thankfully, or I haven't had this happen or that happen. But pain is something that we can all relate to. We can understand hurt. It's kind of like this idea when you bleed, we all bleed the same, the same color. We understand what pain is like. And so, again, if we can have that connection with our own pain and that understanding that this is part of life, that we can tolerate these feelings, that it's okay, and if I can connect to my own pain, I use that as a conduit to connect to your pain as well, to understand you, and then I can be there with you. But if I wanna say sadness is bad, I don't wanna feel sad, sadness is weak, sadness means I can be hurt by other people and I don't want that to happen, it shows that I'm not strong, it shows that I'm even defective because you should always be happy, something that we see more and more, with these positive movements where everyone should be happy all the time, which is not realistic. If I have all those ideas, then when you come to me with your sadness, there's no way I can be there for you. And that's why I try to talk about this so much, because I see how much it hurts relationships and it just hurts individuals when they avoid and dismiss, deny, and even judge their own sadness and how much it interferes with them getting close to their loved ones and being there for each other. All right, going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this last segment, I wanted to talk about kind of it's like I'm doing my greatest hits tonight because we're talking about sadness and empathy in the last segment but the one I wanted to talk about today or this last uh, segment is the idea of having uncomfortable and difficult conversations and this is another topic that I bring up a lot because I see how because of people avoiding again and so that's maybe a general theme from the previous segment and this one that connects the two avoiding sadness and avoiding these difficult conversations I see how much it hurts relationships how much it hurts people when they don't have these conversations. And when I do work with couples, or even going to couples therapy is basically entering a space to have lots of these uncomfortable conversations. Having conversations about things you've been avoiding, and because you've avoided them, problems don't get better when you avoid them, they only grow and become worse. And um, the example I like to use is like if your tooth hurts, and you have a cavity that's forming, a lot of times you say, oh, maybe it'll get better, but a cavity just gets worse and worse. And if you wait too long, it can turn into a root canal and then maybe the whole tooth has to to get removed. And if we take that analogy back to the relationships, well, the problem gets worse and worse and it starts to damage the relationship to the point where it's possible the whole relationship has to get removed, where you have to get a divorce or a breakup or whatever it might be, but it could be the end, Of the relationship when we avoid issues and lots of times people will tell you well i was dating him or i was dating her and this really was bothering me but you know i thought when we got married it would go away or it would change and so i thought you know i'll just wait to see what happens and almost always what we see is that any issue you do have if you don't address it it becomes worse or even bigger with the closer the relationship gets. So if you get married, it's only gonna get worse because now you're even closer and the stress of the relationship is more, you're interacting more. So of course, any issue you have is almost always just going to grow and become bigger. And so why is it that we avoid these conversations? To begin with, when we're talking about difficult or uncomfortable conversations, by definition, they are difficult and uncomfortable. So, of course, they won't feel good to have them. Or thinking about having them is going to make you feel uncomfortable or anxious. And when we feel anxious about something, the reaction is to avoid that thing. And uh, Dr. Tabassan Vahidi was on the show a couple weeks ago talking about OCD and anxiety disorders in general, but this idea is that we tend to avoid the things that make us anxious, but the only way to get over that fear and that anxiety is to face the thing and actually see that it's not that scary. And uncomfortable conversations are kind of the same way. They can feel uncomfortable, thinking about having them can make us feel anxious, but when we have them, especially if we have a good partner and if we approach the conversation the right way, we see that it wasn't as scary as we thought And so because it doesn't feel good, people can always find a way not to do it or a reason not to do it. And this is something that we are so good at as human beings is rationalizing whatever we want to do or whatever we don't want to do. Um, So people think about having the conversation and say, you know what, it's the holidays. So let's wait till the holidays finish and then maybe we'll talk because I don't want to ruin the holiday time. And then, well, it's New Year's, okay, let's enjoy New Year's. You know, Valentine's Day is almost here, so I don't want to bring up this conversation and we have a bad Valentine's Day. She really loves Valentine's Day. So we'll always find a way to get out of it. Another way this comes up that almost makes me laugh is that if one partner brings it up and the other partner doesn't want to have the conversation and wants to avoid it, one of the classic things they'll say is things like, I was having such a bad day, so why would you bring it up today when you know I had a bad day? But then if they're having a good day, they'll say, you know, I was having such a good day. and Now you've ruined it with this conversation. So really, there's no good time to have it because that's the truth. You're never going to want to have these conversations if it's just about it feeling good. It's never about this is going to feel great. Let's do it. It's going to feel bad. So you have to accept that it's going to feel uncomfortable. It's not going to feel good. But we have to recognize that the value of the conversation is that it can help make us closer it can help heal the issues that we have and it can contribute to the health and happiness of our relationship so we have to think it's worth it just like you go to a doctor and they draw your blood and as I'm saying this I recognize I'm probably due to go back or overdue to go back to get a blood drawn if you're out there listening I hope you'll do that to take care of yourself I really dislike getting my blood drawn but no one really likes it I don't think but you do it because you know it could help you figure out what's going on with your health and then help contribute to your health and really in that way, your happiness. So it's not something you enjoy doing, but you do it because you know it has a benefit. And so that's why I talk about it to hopefully get people to recognize the benefits of having these uncomfortable conversations and the flip side of that, the detriments or what happens when you avoid these conversations. Because when people come into couples therapy, Usually the issues they're dealing with are issues that have been there for some time. And often they fought about them, which in that way is good that they haven't avoided it. But a lot of times it's about things that have not been said. And even to me, when I look at affairs, a lot of affairs happen because of conversations that were never had. Because one or both partners avoided talking about the relationship, avoided talking about something they were unhappy about, something they were dissatisfied about in the relationship, something that didn't feel good to them, but they avoided talking about it, they then went to look for it elsewhere. Or if it doesn't even get to that point, it leads to so much distance in the relationship forming that the relationship has to end. And you see this happen very often where people don't have these conversations because they think it's easier to avoid them, but then they pay such a big price in the long run just like if you avoid getting your teeth clean because it's a little bit annoying to go in and get your teeth clean, but then it turns out you have some huge cavities that three years down the line, you have to have surgeries and different things to help deal with that issue. And we know this is true about human beings that delaying gratification is not easy. It's hard to study in the moment for the test tomorrow or the test in a month, uh, and you go have fun because that's more fun in the moment, but you know the better thing is to study now or you wake up and you want to go to the gym because you know it's good for your health, but you say, I'd rather not go and we feel lazy and you don't go. So we avoid doing the thing that's good for us in the long term. This is a similar thing when it comes to our relationships, that we avoid having those uncomfortable conversations because it's easier, more comfortable to avoid it in the moment, but we pay the price in the long term. So if you are in a relationship, and even this It's not just about romantic relationships, but especially those, because even in families, we see this where these conversations are not had conversations that need to be had. And really, if you look at any relationship, I can almost guarantee that there are a handful of uncomfortable conversations that wouldn't be beneficial if they had them, but that both people, or at least one of them, is avoiding the conversation, any relationship. So if you are thinking about any relationship you are in, especially if you're in a romantic relationship, you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, or you're married, think about the uncomfortable conversations that you are avoiding in that relationship. Things that might be about something you're unhappy about, something you want more of in the relationship, something your partner did, that hurt you, or that they continue to do that hurts you, or something else that is going on. Think about those things, and I hope you'll think about how you would benefit from having these conversations. Now, there's lots of reasons people give for not having them. One of them is that it's going to be hurtful or uncomfortable for their partner. So if they bring up, they're unhappy about something, well, that's going to make my partner feel bad, and so I should avoid it. But we can't use just that our partner won't like it as a reason to avoid the conversation, because if it's going to make things better in the long term, that's why you're having it. So I tell the Stephen Couples that when I say share with your partner when they hurt you, it's not because I want your partner to feel bad. It's not because I want your partner to feel guilty or to feel bad about themselves as a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife. No, it's that I know it's going to strengthen the relationship. I know it's going to help you guys. So even when you say it, that's your intention. It's not to attack your partner say, oh, you're so mean, you did this. Or you're such a bad husband, you did that. Or such a bad wife, you always do that. That's That's not the right intention. That's about attacking. What we're talking about is, I know this is not going to be easy for me to talk about. And I know you might not like hearing what I have to say. But because I love you so much. And because I love our relationship so much and want it to be as healthy, happy, and strong as it can be, I'm going to bring this up. So the intention isn't to hurt your partner, to put them down, to make them feel bad. It's actually because you love them that you talk about it, not because you want to hurt them. It's not despite of your love. It's because of your love. You know what? I know this is going to be tough, but I know this is going to help us. So let's talk. And that's why you have those difficult conversations. It's coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of, I want us to be as strong and as happy and healthy as we can be in our relationship, so let's talk. And couples will avoid talking about very important topics, things like sex. Sometimes couples will go to therapy and they've been married for years and have never once talked about their sex life. Are they happy, unhappy, unsatisfied? Do they want more or less? A lot of it they think they understand because there's unspoken ways they try to show those things, but they never actually communicate about what's going on for them, what they like or don't like, or how they feel in the relationship, how they feel about how their partner talks to them, or the things they say or they don't say, or they want to spend more time, or maybe they want more space, whatever it might be. And these can be very difficult conversations because we tend to take things personally. If your partner tells you they want more space, you might take that to mean They don't like spending time with me. They don't want to be with me. Maybe there's someone else when it's more than likely none of those things. It's just that we need space. And I've talked about this before and won't get into it tonight, but that to keep a healthy relationship, you need a combination or a balance between closeness and space. Just like a fire needs the heat of closeness to stay warm, but also needs the space to get the oxygen to breathe, to stay strong. The love and the passion and the flame of love has to stay alive in the same way closeness, and space. You need a balance of both. So if your partner brings that up, you might not like hearing it, but it can be what will save your marriage in the long run, rather than your partner not bringing it up, staying with you, not saying the things that make them feel bad, and then blowing up someday down the line because they can't take it anymore, and now you get a divorce. So we have these conversations, not because they feel good, because but because they are good for the relationship. I bring this up, not because I want to hurt you, but because I love you and I love us to bring this up. And I know we need to have these talks to keep a healthy and happy relationship. And to me, if you're not having some uncomfortable conversations throughout your relationship, almost regularly, it's very unlikely that you're keeping a healthy and strong relationship. It's kind of like, again, going to the dentist and getting a cleaning. You go in there, it doesn't feel so good, but it cleans things up to prevent bigger problems from forming. I do have to wrap up tonight, but again, hope everyone will think about their own relationships and uncomfortable conversations that they might be avoiding and hope they'll consider having those conversations. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to everyone who's listening out there in Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful night. <music>